It seemed to me that Canada-US relations ha- at heart had always been about environmental and energy factors, even if uh, we didn't usually think of it that way, and if that, even if those factors were usually relegated to a footnote in sort of those histories of Canada-US relations. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everybody. I'm Scotty Greenwood with Canadian American Business Council and joined by the best podcast co-host on the history of history, uh, Professor Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris, how you doing? I'm doing great, Scotty. And that's high praise when we're our guest today is an historian. That's right. And I'm excited about the conversation we're going to have. You're going to introduce our guest properly, but it's always good when we bring smart professors and teachers onto the pod to help us learn more about Canada-U.S. relations. So we have uh, Professor Daniel McFarlane, and why don't you introduce him properly? Oh, I'm delighted uh, to do that, Scotty. Daniel McFarlane is an Associate Professor of Environmental and Sustainability Studies at Western Michigan University in beautiful Kalamazoo, Michigan, where my mom lives. Um, (laughs) He's uh, an interdisciplinary scholar working at the intersection of environmental history, political ecology, and historical geography, and his research and teaching focus on American and Canadian water, borderlands, energy, hydraulic engineering, climate change, sustainability, and technology issues in the transborder Great Lakes-St. Lawrence Basin, which really puts him at the heart of uh, Canusa Street. I think Canusa Street has a bridge over some of those uh, troubled waters as well. Um, But uh, we're really excited. He's teaching in American school, but he is uh, originally a Canadian and did his grad work um, he did his PhD at the University of Ottawa, uh, but he did his uh, previous work at the University of Saskatchewan. So uh, you were drawn to the region, uh, and, and now you make your home there. So welcome, Professor McFarland. Thank you very much for having me. We're, we're thrilled to have you. And because Chris led with it, Professor, where are you from in Canada? Tell us a little bit about your backstory before we get into uh, your current research and writing. Sure. Well, I just missed out on being born by a matter of months near Lake Ontario, but my parents moved out to Saskatchewan right before I was born, so I grew up on the prairies, but at heart, I guess I I always felt like I was from the Great Lakes Basin, so that's where I located to for grad school later on, and now I think of myself as a citizen of the Great Lakes Basin, regardless of which side of the border I live on. Well, and it's a per- that's a perfect, uh, the Great Lakes are a perfect analogy for Canada and the United States, um, because we are connected um, in so many ways, including including our ecology, our, our water and our air and our, you know, land and our critters and our spirits in some ways. So uh, Chris mentioned it, but maybe we could t- tee up right now with your most recent book. We love interviewing authors um, and Natural Allies, Environment, Energy and the History of Canada-U.S. Relations. That is uh, a lot. <laughs> Maybe maybe talk to us about what, what the book is about in more specifics and, and why did you write it? Sure. Well, the book is about, I guess I would say, reconceiving the history of Canada-U.S. relations with a focus on those subtitles, environment and energy. Um, just because out of my previous books and research I'd done on things like the St. Lawrence Seaway, the transnational remaking of Niagara Falls, the International Joint Commission, it seemed to me that Canada-U.S. relations at heart had always been about environmental and energy factors, even if uh, we didn't usually think of it that way, and if that, even if those factors were usually relegated to a footnote in sort of those histories of Canada, 
U.S. relations, partly because we think of environmental diplomacy, I think, mostly as environmental protection. So sort of post-1970s, United Nations climate change sorts of things. But if we think of environmental diplomacy as any type of diplomacy that deals with natural resources, then Canada-U.S. relations has always been that. And in fact, right from the beginning, arguably more the negotiations and things that the country, two countries dealt with were about environmental things like fish and border waters. So right from the beginning, even more before we get into the more modern times where it has a more obvious environmental focus, it's always been about that. Well, and I, I love that you uh, you went back to the classics and talked about J. Bartlett Brebner and some of that early work. Um, James Shotwell had that series put together that really coincided with the start of diplomatic relations. We lived next to each other, but we hadn't really thought about each other in such a systematic way. Um, so this has always been part of the conversation. How do you, how do you think it has changed maybe more recently? I I'm not sure there are that many people who are smarter about Canada-U.S. relations, but, but are we understanding each other differently now? I mean, the introductions are over. Now we've got quite a rich relationship, but do we understand each other any better than we did? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think so. And that's partly the result of, I mean, it kind of gets into, maybe I'm taking the question in the wrong direction, but sort of the special relationship. Right. And so a lot of people argue, you know, how much is that cultural and that sort of thing? I'm, I guess I'm arguing in this book, it's more geographical and natural resource based. So that history of sharing landscapes and waters and ecosystems creates some of those affinities. But also in cases like the Great Lakes, where you have to share and cooperate in order for both sides to get the most out of it, lends itself to cooperation. So to the extent that there is um, cooperation in the more recent times, I think that's a product of a lot of those environmental factors. So, um, right, in there, so that's probably the way it's changed. In the early years, it was partly about Canada, you know, asserting its independence from Britain. And again, that's where that's where these natural factors play a role. British diplomats don't know, you know, the, the cubic feet per second of a particular water body. They're too far away, especially hundred years ago, with lack of information or so that on the ground knowledge that you need to have about negotiating over border waters or fish kind of allowed Canada to gain its diplomatic independence, I think, earlier, uh, either both informally and formally. Um, and all that plays into creating what I think is a lot of that special relationship to the extent there is one between the two countries. And it, it's interesting because that reminds me of, uh, well, uh, another import to Michigan, uh, Gordon Stewart, whose book on uh, the American response to Canada since 1776 uh, up at Michigan State, sort of made a similar observation, but saw maybe the the environment as being the place where the Americans were able to boost Canada up as a sovereign equal to draw it away from Britain on the argument, it's just local business. London doesn't need to worry about this. We can just focus on it locally. And, and you've kind of extended that a little bit forward into a continuing continuing uh, narrative where Canada is standing up and, and actually finding a level of equality with the United States where they can we can talk pe person to person about stuff that we share. Right. And I think it's because of, again, dealing with natural resource factors and, and arguably the fact that in the Canada-U.S. relationship, Canada is more likely to put its top officials and top people on the Canada-U.S. file, whereas it might be a little more peripheral, right, for, for the American side. So you've got your best negotiators, even you know, top ministers and, and prime ministers getting involved. So 
in that way, Canada is able to actually make out better than you, one might expect, given the asymmetry between the two countries, because of the fact that they're dealing with environmental and energy diplomatic factors, or at least that's what I would argue. Which was the Kohei Nanai argument, by the way, with power and interdependence. So yes, good, good citation. Sorry. Back to you. I'm not I'm not positive I can agree with Canada sends its best people to negotiate with the US and the US treats it as peripheral, but I, I won't debate you on that. Let's let's talk about water a little bit more. Water, you know, is obviously essential to life. Um, and in the Great Lakes in particular, I think there's an appreciation for the centrality of water, not only um for food, uh, but also for navigation, for trade, for commerce, uh, really for a whole way of life. So um, do you think Canada and the United States over time have sort of gotten it right with respect to how we manage our common waterways? I mean, you've, you've written a lot and taught a lot about uh, not just the Great Lakes, but the St. Lawrence Seaway, the International Joint Commission, which, as our listeners may know, it was set up years ago to figure out a way to uh, try to manage our common waterways. Do you, is it, are the models working? Is the bureaucracy that is set up to deal with uh, our common waterways, uh, is, it, is it functional? Is it, is it working? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think out of any two countries, they might have the best working relationship when it comes to water. I mean, it, uh, I do argue in the book, it's easy to exaggerate that the IJC became a model for the rest of the world because no one's really ever copied it um, <laughs> very directly. Um, but certain things like the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreements and other aspects of it have been, uh, you know, uh, sort of become a bit of a model for, for other places. Um, there, there's limitations because both sides are only willing to give up so much sovereignty. So with the International Joint Commission and the Boundary Waters Treaty, they don't have to listen to the International Joint Commission necessarily. And often the, the two governments don't. But there's been many times when they did, and such as the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement that, that I mentioned. So, I mean, I think it was probably more important or had more influence, the commission that is, at certain well, points in the past. Yeah, this is interesting. Can Give us an example of a time when the International Joint Commission made a recommendation and one or the other of the countries just said, no, thank you. Can you right, but we've had, yeah, we've had a number of cases with the Milk St. Mary dispute, um, different cases in British Columbia, and again with garrison diversion and things like that. To a certain extent with the St. Lawrence Seaway, some of that had happened as well. So in some of those cases, both the St. Lawrence Seaway, for the navigation aspect, they ended up making government-to-government -government agreement outside of the IJC, but used the IJC for the hydropower aspect. And the same thing with the 1950 Niagara River Diversion Treaty. Uh, they make an actual agreement between the two countries and just then have the IJC oversee the, oversee the technical implementation and monitoring of that. So when it's advantageous, I think, to governments, and it's a useful thing to have, and then there's been other times, especially in recent decades, where yeah, they, they might tend to ignore the IJC if it isn't convenient <laughs> uh, to well, listen to them. Well, on that point, one thing that's that's I, f I found a little surprising is that in a, one of our current uh, bilateral disputes over Enbridge's Line 5 pipeline, which uh, the governor of the state of Michigan believes uh, poses a risk if they upgrade the pipeline to the Great Lakes because it moves under the Straits of Mackinac. We've talked about it on the program before. I was a little surprised that that the IJC wasn't brought in to evaluate the science on all of this. There have been lots of 
claims and counterclaims by Michigan, by the federal governments. And I know the Army Corps of Engineers, which is represented on the IJC, is already doing some of this study, so it's not. But but here the two governments had a disagreement. There was a state and a province, and you had the two feds. Why didn't they refer it to the IJC? Have we forgotten that we have this resource? I think it's mostly because it is a disagreement, and they don't send things to the IJC if they're disagreeing about it. It's where it's sent to implement or sometimes to put to bed certain issues they don't want to deal with. But when there's an issue like this where you've got a lot of friction of what the United States may want, especially Michigan and Canada, you need both countries to agree to send a reference to the IJC. So I would imagine it's a non-starter because neither side wants that, the IJC to address that matter. Interesting. Uh, now, now, one thing that stood out for me in, in reading the book was just, it was a comment that although we're very linked, that for Canada, hitching their wagon to the U.S. star was a bit of a Faustian bargain. Uh, good in the front end, but maybe with longer term negative implications. Can you unpack that a little bit? Sure. I mean, it, it depends on one's perspective. When I say where it was good, is definitely prosperity and affluence. So Canada becomes a much richer country with a much higher standard of living because of giving U.S. access to resources, trading with the United States, and, and that sort of thing. So, but it was the per- perpetual sort of balance between affluence versus sovereignty, because that involves, of course, giving up some types of sovereignty, some more direct than others. And then, I mean, the U.S. does treat Canada fairly well in terms of you know, not playing hardball politics, I would argue, given the power differences between the two. But I argue in the book, it's because Canada is good at reading, reading the tea leaves and knowing what's going to be acceptable to the U.S. without the U.S. having to beat it over the head. So Canada sort of acquiesces in advance on a lot of key issues. So, but I mean, so that that's the tension, I think, is prosperity versus sovereignty. So for those who would, you know, don't like uh, the giving up of sovereignty, that's where it's more of, I think, the, the Faustian bargain. And, and I, I want to get, of course, Scotty, a chance to get in, but I'm just nerding out on this discussion because it's really interesting to me. You've got a... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> but you, you've you got a phrase in there that really also struck me, which was this discussion of natural security. I mean, you know, the title of the book is Natural Allies, but the idea that instead of on a sovereignty basis focusing on national security, because of the overlap, the integration of the environments, both countries need to think more in terms of a natural security, security of our natural environment that is livable, sustainable, et cetera, for us. And I found that very interesting. Do you, do you see that as an aspirational goal we could work to or the kind of thing that's actually beginning to gain traction among environmentalists and policymakers that you, you've observed so close, closely in the Great Lakes? I, well, I think it's more aspirational because we're not that close to it. There's certainly people, you know, I think, I think going towards that, but it's, it's just sort of the argument and drawing from, you know, sustainability, environmental studies that, I um, mean, if you have models of sustainability, if you don't have a function, functioning ecosystems, environment, uh, the economies and societies aren't going to thrive in, in the long run. Not, not to mention, I think we're seeing in, at least in North America, greater threats to actual human security coming from climate change and water resources, that sort of thing, rather than external military forces um, for the most part. So it's both that environmental aspect, but even just our straightforward type of security might be more threatened by what's happening ecologically. So we're going to take a little break here. This is interesting. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you, Daniel, about um, another body of water. We've been talking about if you're Canadian looking south, 
to the boundary waters, but there are other boundary waters if you look north, and that's up in the Arctic. So we're gonna talk about that when we come right back. Are you red, white, and blue, or just red and white? Beaver or bald eagle? Ryan Reynolds or JLo? Canusa Street, a masterclass in cross-border relations. This is where Canada and the United States intersect on the policies and issues of our two great nations. But you know that already, that's why you're here. The question is, if you want more of this bilateral bonanza delivered directly to your inbox, and you know you do, how about signing up for Scotty Greenwood's weekly email updates on Canada-US relations? Head to cabc.co to sign up today. And now back to Canusa Street. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. This is Chris Sands, and I'm here with the great Scotty Greenwood, and we're talking today to Daniel McFarland, uh, an associate professor of environmental and sustainability studies at Western Michigan University in beautiful Kalamazoo, and the author of a new book, Natural Allies, a history of US-Canada environmental and energy diplomacy. Uh, and when we took the break, uh, Scotty was about to shift us north. That's right. And uh, just for our listeners' benefit, I, I haven't pre-gamed any of this with Professor McFarland, so you can um, you can punt this one if you want, because uh, it's it's not necessarily germane. But as we talk about Canada-U.S. collaboration on water and our boundary waters, thinking about the Great Lakes and the St. Lawrence and the Columbia River, all, you know everything uh, that is between us, kind of more or less along the 49th parallel. Uh, it also makes me think about the shared waterways uh, in the Arctic. And so I'd love just your perspective on uh, are the systems set up for Canada and the United States to collaborate as efficiently up north? Are people even paying attention to uh, the boundary waters and the shared waterways uh, in the Arctic as we do, for example, in the Great Lakes? What do you think about that? Well, I think a lot of scholars and policy experts and government officials are definitely paying attention to what's going on up north. I don't think there's as much attention within the public there, but there's certainly some because there's, that's a historical flashpoint, right? With U.S. sending ships through, you know, did that have Canadian permission or not? But but the other interesting aspect of that is that those waters bring in other countries rather than just being Canada and the U.S. dealing directly with each other. So that does lend itself to them cooperating to be on the same page, maybe in opposition to countries like Russia or um, working with other, you know, uh, circumpolar northern countries. So it's a different set of factors, I think. And there's also some uncertainties in terms of, you know, national jurisdiction, uh, offshore water rights, and then mineral and fossil fuel rights there. So I definitely think it's, it'll be one of, be a, a bigger problematic issue moving forward than probably the Great Lakes are as likely to be or, or somewhere like that. So it's definitely one people should be paying attention to. And to be fair, I think there are a lot of scholars who are <laughs> definitely paying attention to, to the North. Well, right. And in your formulation of, you know, prosperity versus sovereignty, it seems to me that there are a lot of, cha plus environmental uh, integrity, shall we say, uh, there are a lot of big thorny questions up there um, that, that are worth that are worth thinking about. And maybe we learn a few things from Great Lakes cooperation. Um, I mean, maybe we don't, but but I th these are these issues become more and more important as as the ice up there uh, turns to liquid, right? Right. I mean, to take a a bit of a cynical view, even of what we've done in the Great Lakes, we could argue some of the Boundary Waters Treaty and some of those agreements were were 
agreements to mutually exploit environments and do so most productively and cooperatively. So that part maybe could be, yeah, that's applicable to what's going on up there in that it's about resources, I think, in many cases. That's why governments and people are looking at what's going on up there. So the type of things I mentioned, um, types of things I mentioned earlier with fossil fuels and things like that. But we've also sort of a different ballgame now than it was in, say, 1909, where we're a lot more cognizant of the impacts of of do we want to be bringing up fossil fuels and things like this, given climate change and all those types of worries. So in that sense, it's some uh, history repeating itself, but a whole new different set of factors, especially when we add in that it's not just Canada and the U.S. dealing with each other, but other countries that are claiming rights uh, up north as well. Let me pick up on on that if if I can, and, and it's really more of a political science question than a history question, but maybe you can give us a, a little perspective on uh, yes, it's Canada and the U.S. and the Great Lakes region in, in many ways, but it's also the states, the provinces, local governments. I remember for a while when our Great Lakes water levels were falling, one of the big fights was with Chicago that wanted to take more water out of the lakes to support the city's drinking water, etc. To what extent are the international relations, if you can call it that, around shared waters really multi-level? Uh, you know, your, your Putnam two-level game times 10 because there's so many different players, so many different egos, and so many different capabilities that could potentially come to the table. Right. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right that this is you know, multi-level. We've got lots of subnational jurisdictions and sub-federal diplomacy going on. I mean, in the book, I actually argue that it's dealing with issues and like the Great Lakes and others, where you've got Ontario as a province, some of the other states are actually first asserting themselves as diplomatic actors. Because when it comes to the Great Lakes, for example, um, the provinces you know, had attained jurisdiction over hydroelectric power. So an agreement on building a hydroelectric dam, say in the St. Lawrence or Niagara Falls, requires provincial input. And the same way with, with the states, and you mentioned the Chicago diversion, right, going back to 1900, that remains an issue because you've got other states, well, such as Michigan, but other U.S. states were trying to fight domestically through the courts and other ways, Chicago unilaterally taking water out of Lake Michigan and then making common cause with Canada as well. So that's um, manifests itself more recently with, with the Great Lakes Compact and then the Companion Agreement um, to try to prevent the diversions out. Uh, and, and I'm always fascinated, and there are a couple of places in the book where you talk about the kind of conversation we have, and there's always the raw politics, you know, of, of interests and who's got the most votes and all of that. But it seems as though we found a common vocabulary often around science and around numbers, quantities, data, where the political arguments have their place, but we, we can at least agree on the on the shape of the table because we we're talking about numbers. I wonder if if you think that's still true today, and I wanted to focus on one institution that uh, doesn't get a lot of play in the book, but that's the North American Commission on Environmental Cooperation up in Montreal, created as part of the NAFTA. The one institution that was sort of a NAFTA side agreement institution that survived through to the USMCA in a lot of ways, although I think we still have the NAD Bank, but but we we don't have the Labor Commission, we don't have some of the others. So have we? do we still have the ability to have a conversation on data and on science, or is, has that become so political now that that it's it's politics that really rules, or or can we put our faith in some of the science that's out there? Yeah, I'd like to think we still can, because there is that long history of, I mean, I think of examples with the Columbia River and again, the Great Lakes cases where you've got 
bureaucrats, technocrats, engineers speaking a common language representing different countries. And sometimes this is, you know, this is working through the International Joint Commission as well, where uh, because they almost have more in common because of their shared occupation or their shared interest in developing something. So the flip side is that often became able to become politicized as well. Um, but um, yes, I'm trying to think the answer of it as I answer. I think it's still a key part, but I can definitely, uh, definitely also argue that technical expertise in the numbers does get politicized quite often. So it's, it's certainly a mix. Fair enough. I often launch into a question uh, just talking for a while and trying to figure out what my question is. So uh, <laughs> as Scotty <laughs> um, well knows. <laughs> and we're, we're coming into the home stretch of, of this particular podcast. Interesting discussion with Professor McFarlane. Uh, I want to I want to talk about you uh, as a teacher. Uh, it's fall. We're we're recording this in fall 2023. C- classes just started around the country. My son just started just started university, which is exciting. Um, what's your favorite class to teach, and what are the what are the couple of concepts that resonate the most uh, with the students when you're when you're teaching there at Western Michigan? Right. So, I mean, it's it's worth pointing out, even though I'm trained as a historian, I was actually hired as a policy scholar. And so I teach environmental policy and water yeah. policy and that sort of thing. So I think my favorite class to teach is might be the class I teach that's Introduction to Environmental Studies and Sustainability because we go uh, camping in it. So that's coming up oh, in nice. a few weeks. So we, we go yeah. camping for the weekend. I mean, that's part of the idea is, you know, it's, we're looking at nature. You got to get out into nature. So. Normally, we go to uh, Sleeping Bear Sand Dunes, the biggest freshwater sand dunes in the world on Lake Michigan. Wow. We've had we've had to audible this year just because of some issues with insurance with national parks. So we're going to a different location. Hopefully, we'll go back to it in the future. But doing that is usually always the highlight. I mean, we get to do a lot of outside things. I've taught other classes on on the Enbridge oil spill, for example, in the Kalamazoo River. So we, with that class, we went kayaking on the Kalamazoo River and looked at where the oils will happen and do things wow. like that. So it's that being able to be in environmental studies, that ability to do those sorts of field trips and get outside. But I mean, in terms of types of concepts, I think that resonates with students. I mean, one that I can think of because I just did it today is often how much recycling is a scam, right. <laughs> so to speak. Yeah. Like most more, more than 90% of what we think we put out for recycling doesn't get recycled. And there's arguments that it was actually recycling sort of an invention of some of the big corporations that wanted us to use single-use plastics, not feel guilty about it. So that the whole re- recycling system is sort of a sham to get us to consume more and buy more. So I find that maybe it's just because I talked about it today, but yeah, recycling is kind of seen as a key plank of environmentalism. So to come out and say to students use that, that sort of hyperbolic language about it. It usually gets home with them a little bit. That gets people's attention, right? Right. I'm not, again, another premise, I'm not sure I can accept that it's a scam and it was an invention of big corporates. As somebody who uh, is involved with the business community, who's doing a lot on recycling, uh, but but anyway, I, I get how that would be a headline <laughs> grabber for a university course and, and, and quite interesting. Yeah, to be fair, I, I do qualify it a bit after that. That's to grab their absolutely. attention. And then, yeah, and then, no, that's right. And then look at the nuances. Sure, absolutely. All this fair in love and war and undergraduate seminars. It, uh, I think that's the, the caveat that's often added. Um, 
Daniel McFarland, uh, author of Natural Allies, Environment, Energy, and the History of U.S.-Canada Relations, available wherever fine books are sold, including online, from McGill Queen's University Press. Thanks for coming and talking to us a little bit about the environmental dimension of our bilateral relationships, the, the way in which we work together, and giving us some hope that, uh, that we can keep working together for another couple of hundred years. Really great to have you on the show. It's so good to have you, and now that we know that you can go kayaking in your class or camping, um, I think I I want to sign up for your class. So <laughs> thanks for coming on. All right. Thank you. Chris, I love it when you nerd out with a fellow professor. It really, uh, I think it's it, it raises the uh, understanding level uh, of our listeners. And it certainly, I learn something every time we do this. And I, you know, historical references, putting things into context, that's a, that's a great way to go. Well, it was a lot of fun and I hope I wasn't too self-indulgent on all of that, but it's, it, it, it's something that we don't have enough of. People who really dig deep into the Canada-US relationship and, and have, uh, give us a perspective on what we do well and what we do uh, poorly. I was reminded listening to him of something that you've often said, which is that we're in the same waters, but in different boats. I, I know that that's been one of your metaphors. And, and this is a great example. I mean, we share the waters, but we, we do float on those waters in different boats. And, and reconciling the two is, is critical. It is critical. And uh, water issues, uh, whether it's what we drink, what we use for our agriculture, uh, recreation, commerce, uh, they're all giant. Uh, and, and food, you know, food from the water, right? The protein that you get uh, from the sea. These are all, these are all actually awfully large. And I'm, gl I'm glad we can talk about it in different ways. And, and I hope that our regular listeners on Canusa Street learn something each time. And, um, you know, send us your thoughts on this, listeners. Tell us what you think. Tell us what you want us to, to be talking about, your favorite professors, your favorite books. And who knows, maybe we'll invite them on to Canusa. We are, all, we always have room for more on Canusa Street. And uh, this, but this was a great addition. Thanks, Scotty, for convening us once again. Thank you. And thank you for bringing us back to your mom's hometown, Kalamazoo. Pretty great. Maybe we can get my mom on one of these times. Oh, let's do it. <laughs> Let us do it. That would be awesome. All right. Bye for now. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.